Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 4.20, The Boston Tea Party. Last time, when we left off, the third phase of the imperial crisis really had just fully launched. Massachusetts had spent their time since June 1773 trading shots with Thomas Hutchinson. Hutchinson's, along with Andrew Oliver's, letters back to London had been sent to the colonies courtesy of Benjamin Franklin. These had, of course, blown up and had led the Boston colonists to demanding that Hutchinson be recalled. As all of this is going on, a much bigger event was happening in the background. The British were desperate to bail out the struggling East India Company, which had been battling corruption for years. A solution had manifested in the form of the Tea Act. Under this act, the American colonists would see the three-pence duty remain in place, a duty that had been in place and quietly paid since the Townsend Acts. The difference is that the British granted the East India Company a tax rebate, meaning that they could sell at a lower price to the colonists. The plan was that the price could now drop low enough that it would undercut the thriving smuggling market and would make the East India Company tea cheaper than the illegally imported tea. The ministry hoped, and thought, incorrectly as it will all turn out, that the colonists would not balk at the duty, considering that, one, they were already paying it, and two, the price of tea was going to drop. Hopefully this is not a spoiler for anybody, but the colonists are in fact going to balk at this. They are indeed going to complain very loudly, and in a way that will permanently alter the relationship between the mother country and her colonies. So, with that, let's jump right back in and check out why everybody was about to lose their minds over tea. This episode today is called The Boston Tea Party. This alone probably would make one think that the epicenter of our episode is in fact going to be back with all of our friends in Boston. And, to be fair, that is indeed where we are going to spend much of our time today. However, it is not where we are going to start the day, because while Boston is going to make their feelings very well known eventually, they actually were a bit behind on their response to the Tea Act and would spend much of the early portion of this particular crisis scrambling to catch up. As Boston was busy dealing with the fallout from the Hutchinson letters, the initial response to the Tea Act came from the Sons of Liberty in Philadelphia and New York. As news came in, much of the initial response looked like what we have seen before. There were angry publications, as the colonists argued that both the duty itself and the creation of the monopoly violated their rights as British citizens. In Philadelphia, events proceeded at a far more frantic pace than we have seen in the past. Virtually from the very beginning, the Philadelphia Sons of Liberty made abundantly clear that violence was an appropriate remedy for anybody who attempted to bring tea into the colony. The first information regarding the Tea Act had begun reaching the colonies in October. Large meetings in both Philadelphia and New York 
called the act out as being nothing short of a plan to enslave the colonists under an absolute tyranny. In Philadelphia, they made it even more abundantly clear where they stood, proclaiming that anybody who imports East India Company tea should be regarded as nothing less than an enemy to the country. Those who were set to receive the tea, the designated Kosanis, were made up of mostly wealthy Quakers. They quickly read the room and realized that if for nothing else other than self-preservation, resigning their commissions was a wise move. The colonists, however, were not messing around, and these proclamations were not mere lip service. Very quickly, the artisan class rallied to denounce the tea, and to make obvious that anybody that attempted importation would face consequences. In one instance, a Captain Ayers, no relation by the way, was planning to land in Pennsylvania. The locals made Captain Ayers aware that landing his cargo would result in his being tarred and feathered, something that Ayers was not exactly excited about. By the time that Ayers actually arrived off the coast of North America, the local Kosanese reiterated that they had no intentions of accepting the tea, and were quick to let Ayers know that they wanted absolutely nothing to do with his cargo. Ayers, realizing that he was not about to land his shipment, made a quick U-turn and headed back across the ocean. Similar events had taken place in New York, where the Kosanese publicly announced that they would not accept the tea and resigned their commissions. There was at least some discussion over whether or not the tea should be landed and placed into storage. However, that discussion quickly became moot when bad weather blew the tea ships on their way to New York badly off course. About the only major port in the colonies that was still importing tea was down in Charleston. A battle had erupted there regarding exactly what was going to be incorporated into non-importation. The issue is that those who wanted to legally import tea called for a complete boycott of all tea. The problem that they saw is that should only the legally imported tea be banned from landing, it would give an economic advantage to those relying upon the smugglers. As this debate was going on, the tea actually did manage to land. Now, ultimately, the Kosainis wanted nothing to do with the tea. Again, likely out of interest in self-preservation. Eventually, the tea was seized because nobody actually got around to paying the duty on it. From there, it would sit in storage and it would never actually be sold. While other colonies were addressing the importation of tea head-on, Massachusetts remained embroiled in the battle with Thomas Hutchinson. As a result, Boston was unusually slow to react. However, when it did come time to do something, the Bostonians mostly followed the lead from down in Pennsylvania and New York. Really, nothing about this stood out as being terribly progressive or radical when compared to the other colonies. Local leaders launched into attacks using the Boston Gazette. They made their now normal complaints about their rights as British citizens and vowed not to import the tea. It isn't as though their response was lackluster, although it was nothing new or novel. 
it is exactly the same that we have seen time and time again by now. On October 18th, the Boston Gazette ran an article discussing the importation of the tea, and more importantly, providing the names of the cosignees who were set to receive the shipment. The Massachusetts cosignees were listed as Richard Clark, Benjamin Faneuil, and two of Thomas Hutchinson's children. The article went on to encourage those in Boston to follow the lead of the other colonies and pass resolutions, as had been the case in Philadelphia and New York. Among the things that really did help spur Boston to action was the knowledge that should the tea land and the duty be paid, it would personally benefit Hutchinson and his family, who, as we have been discussing, were not exactly on great terms at the moment with the Boston Whigs. More than taking a secondary role, initially at least, to the other colonies, there was considerable concern from Philadelphia and New York about the resolve of the Boston merchants to enforce a boycott in the first place. Boston had long had an appetite for tea. Although the smuggling of Dutch tea was common in Boston, it was hardly the only method of import. Plenty of legally imported tea came through the town. The towns in duty on tea had remained in place, so the hated duties were being paid. At the same time, as Boston took the lead in the battle of non-importation, pressuring other colonies to not import items covered by the duties, Boston was always lagging behind improving their own compliance. The papers showing their dedication to non-importation always seemed to be misplaced. If this had been a point of annoyance before, the explicit passage of the Tea Act suddenly made Boston's continued lax attitude towards the importation of tea downright unacceptable. Non-importation is great so long as everybody is on board. Merchants in New York nor Philadelphia were interested in being undercut by Boston, who continued to import tea. Despite Boston being a bit late to the party, they would spend November of 1773 attempting to rally. The assault against the act began mostly through the Boston Gazette, which encouraged the Boston cosignees to resign their commissions and to refuse to accept the East India Company shipment. The cosignees responded by defending themselves in the press, pointing out that the duty on tea had been paid for years with little complaint. Not to mention duties on molasses and wine, which were still in place. This effort, however, came to little effect. As it would turn out, regardless of any truth to their points, the Boston Whigs at this point had far more popular support than did the cosignees. As the cosignees did not just eagerly hand over their commissions, on November 2nd, notices went up that the next day there would be a meeting at the Liberty Tree. The cosignees were very strongly encouraged to come and resign those pesky commissions. The next day, at the Liberty Tree, a large number of people turned out to see the cosignees make the right decision. People at the tree that day, November 3rd, included a wide sampling of the local population. There were merchants, artisans, 
as well as a good number of people who really just came for the show. John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and Joseph Warren were all there as well. Unfortunately for the anxious crowd, the one group that was not represented that day at the Liberty Tree were the Cosignees. William Molyneux, likely just assuming that the Cosignees had lost their invitations, decided to lead the crowd over to Richard Clark's warehouse, where him and the other Cosignees were all holed up. Probably not surprisingly, the Cosignees had not lost their invitations. After several minutes of a tense questioning between Richard Clark and William Molyneux, the former dismissed the latter. Molyneux left empty-handed. However, the crowd was less inclined to leave without finding some kind of satisfaction. A small riot broke out, which led to a brief, though undoubtedly unnerving, standoff between the crowd and the Cosignees. After some time, the crowd broke up and went home. However, clear lines had been drawn. On November 5th, a large meeting was held where Boston agreed to follow Philadelphia's lead and pass a matching resolution. As was the case in Philadelphia, one of the goals of the resolution was to get the Cosignees to agree to resign their commissions. The problem, however, is that the Cosignees remained reluctant. Despite this reluctance, they had also not forgotten the riot from just the other day, and the prospect of getting tarred and feathered was not particularly alluring. This put everybody in a tight spot. The Cosignees did not really want to comply with the Bostonians, nor did they want to face the wrath of the Boston mobs. Likewise, Boston leadership, under men like Adams and Hancock, still wanted to avoid a widespread outbreak of violence. The Cosignees went with the always popular third option. They stalled as much as they could. In the weeks following the demands that the Cosignees hand over their commissions, everybody was perched precariously on the edge. On November 17th, a crowd mulled ominously around Thomas Hutchinson's house, looking for his sons. Upon discovering that neither of them were home, the crowd moved on to the home of Richard Clark. The Clarks, who were obviously concerned with a growing mob, did what they could to get them to disperse. At some point, somebody fired from one of the windows into the crowd. Although nobody was hurt, the parallels to the 1770 killing of young Christopher Snyder cannot be missed. Nobody died nor was injured on the 17th. The mob broke some windows and caused some general havoc before dispersing for the evening. For pretty obvious reasons, the Cosignees were shaken up following the events of the 17th. They were all well aware of the violence that the Boston mob could unleash, and they wanted to do whatever they possibly could to avoid bringing that wrath on themselves. The Cosignees therefore turned to Governor Hutchinson. Hutchinson promptly turned to the council. The problem for Hutchinson is that the council was not chosen by him nor by the crown directly. It was picked by the colony's House of Representatives. If Thomas Hutchinson was expecting that the council was going to help him, 
he was about to be very disappointed. The council had no intention of bailing out Hutchinson or the Cosignese. They were very much on their own. The crisis would come to the beginning of a head on November 28th, when the Dartmouth, a ship loaded with East India Company tea, entered Boston Harbor. Now, I say the beginning of a head, because things are actually going to drag out just a bit. The ship cleared the customs house that same day, and now had 20 days to pay the duty on tea. Should the Dartmouth fail to pay the duty, the ship and its cargo were subject to seizure. The owner of the ship, when Francis Roch, desperately wanted the tea taken off of his ship as expediently as possible. He had cargo to ship back across the Atlantic and, more importantly, worried that a failure to unload the tea would be financially devastating to him. Now, if you're wondering, why doesn't he just, you know, turn around and leave? Well, as it turns out, that is not really an option. The ship had cleared customs. It wasn't like Roch could just leave. Any attempt to leave without paying the duty was liable to get his ship fired upon as a smuggler. Roch was stuck. In response to the landing of the Dartmouth, a large town meeting was held on November 29th, where it was decided that the tea could not be landed, and that under no circumstance could the duty be paid on the tea. The only acceptable outcome was that the tea needed to be returned to London aboard the Dartmouth. Despite the warning to not unload the tea, there was still real concern that at some point, despite the protesting, somebody was going to unload the tea. In order to prevent such a thing from happening, it was decided that a 25-man guard be posted at all times down at Griffin's Wharf. What ensued from this point moving forward was a standoff. Everybody had their eyes set on December 17th, the day after the 20 days expired. Hutchinson, by this point, had become almost powerless in Boston. He had ordered the meeting on the 29th to break up, as it was an illegal gathering. The colonists seemed to have very little interest, however, in the demands of their governor. Hutchinson likewise could not get a local magistrate to break up the meeting, because the magistrates were loyal to the Sons of Liberty. Without setting off a far more dire series of events, all Thomas Hutchinson could do is sit and wait. Within a few days, more ships arrived, including the Eleanor, the Beaver, and the William. All three of them ended up moored at the wharf, nervously watching the clock. During this time, the ownership of the tea was really muddled. The tea had technically landed, but had yet to be unloaded. The British Navy, therefore, had the best claim to jurisdiction over it. However, in reality, nobody was really wanting to provoke the Bostonians. March 1770 was not that far in the past. Nobody wanted another Boston massacre. These fears were being openly fanned by men like John Hancock, who warned that Hutchinson was preparing to order troops into Boston to defend any interference with the Tea Act. 
As time marched inevitably towards the 17th, everybody stood on pins and needles. The Kosainese had relocated over to Castle Island, as flashbacks of the Stamp Act riots ran through their collective memories. Hutchinson himself was in a rough place. On the one hand, his council had zero intention of doing anything to help him out, leaving him and the Kosainese isolated. On the other hand, Hutchinson was profoundly sick of the Boston Radicals and had no plans to cave in to their whims. A standoff, therefore, ensnared the colonists and the governor. Francis Roch was stuck in the middle of all of this. The Sons of Liberty, as well as a few other groups who, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to group under the Sons at the moment, and the governor were engaged in a struggle to see who would blink first. For Roch, all of this political maneuvering was one thing. However, he was stuck in a position where he was becoming increasingly distressed over the very significant financial loss that he was facing. Not only was his cargo in serious danger, but the Dartmouth itself was facing potential seizure. Roch was understandably worried that the standoff would be financially ruinous to him. Though by this point, it had become clear to him that he was really nothing more than a pawn in this great game. In the weeks before the 17th, there were attempts by the colonists to convince the governor and the Kosainese that taking the tea out of the harbor was going to be the best idea. Really, during this period, there seemed to be earnest interest from the colonists to avoid a more general confrontation. The tea was not going to land. They were determined to see to that. But there seemed to be little interest in creating a much bigger affair. This is not to say that they were not planning for contingencies. Those were already well underway. As we are going to see in a few minutes, the events that are coming were not something spontaneous. But rather, it was well-coordinated and professionally carried out. Much of the time during this period was spent shoring up support, both real and under duress. Roch, for instance, had agreed that he would take the tea back to London. However, it made clear to the Committee of Correspondence representatives that he was doing so under duress. The committee, concerned with his commitment of returning his ship to London, with the tea still on board, decided that it was time for him to ask for an official permit to leave. Sure enough, with just days to go before the deadline hit, Roch did show some signs of vacillating on his earlier promise. This was not going to fly, and under considerable pressure, Roch agreed to go to the customs house and request permission to leave without unloading his tea. This trip to the customs house was not a lonely affair for Roch as several prominent leaders went with him, including Samuel Adams. Here again, Roch ran directly into a brick wall. The customs official that he made the request to was Richard Harrison. Richard Harrison was the son of Joseph Harrison. We had met Joseph Harrison back in episode 4.14 during the Liberty Riots, when he had the unfortunate job of having to seize Hancock's sloop. The younger Richard Harrison 
got the experience of watching the crowd beat his father to a bloody pulp that day. Unsurprisingly, the answer from Harrison was an emphatic no. December 16th was filled with meetings in Boston. People from all over Massachusetts were in attendance. The last 20 days had built up to this moment. With Roch being shut down days before by Harrison, the colonists were not ready to let him off the hook. There was still one person out there who could override the denial by Harrison. That person was Thomas Hutchinson. Now, Roch, and really everybody else knew, that this was a fool's errand. Hutchinson was not about to give in to the demands of the rabble. He was determined to stand his ground. Sure enough, Roch was told by Hutchinson that there was no way that the Dartmouth was going to be leaving without first paying their duty. At around 6 p.m. that night, Roch brought the news. The tea was not going to be heading back to London. The meeting greeted this news with animosity towards Roch. However, quickly that was put down. Roch had, despite his actual despair in doing so, done what he could to send the tea back to London. After angry calls to destroy the tea, calls that were not vocally acknowledged by the leadership, Samuel Adams told those assembled that they had done all they could. It was over. It was time to go home. Of course, it was not time to go home. Adams and company wanted to make plainly clear that they had done everything that they could. They had, for the last 20 days, gone through every legal measure to reject the tea. They had appealed to the Cosignees, to the customs officials, to Hutchinson himself. All of it had come to nothing. Nobody would be able to claim that the committees of correspondence nor the sense of liberty had failed to try for more peaceful options. One of the truths about the Tea Party is that we actually know shockingly little about it. That isn't to say that we don't know what happened. We are going to get there in a minute. However, there are a few things that I want you all to keep in mind as we move forward. It is easy to group the Tea Party in with moments like the Stamp Act riots, the Liberty Riots, or the mass gatherings following the death of young Christopher Snyder. However, this really is an altogether different event. Although we know very little about the planning that went into the Tea Party, largely because those who were involved operated under a very strict sense of secrecy, which mostly remained intact long after the war. However, nothing about the Tea Party was a mob action either. As we are about to see, this was a highly organized and shockingly efficient affair. Shortly after Roch revealed his failed attempt to appeal to Hutchinson, the initial signs that something was up began to appear. The first sign that something was up was the sound of war whoops. Outside, a group of men, some dressed as mohawks, others not, were moving towards the wharf. Nobody actually thought that this was a group of Mohawks coming to Boston. Rather, the point of the costumes was to try to make themselves look like a distinct political group. The point was to give both the Sons of Liberty and the Committee of Correspondence plausible deniability. Back inside the meeting, Adams and Hancock made some overtures towards re-establishing peace. But really, this was just another attempt to try to signal that they were not involved in what was coming. 
the men outside marched, orderly, down to the docks, where they promptly boarded the moored ships. As they boarded the ships, they took care to let the crew know that they were in no danger, and even took care to protect all of the other cargo. In one case where a padlock was broken accidentally, it was replaced. This going on in New England meant that the men boarding the ships knew their way around. They knew how to unload cargo effectively, and this is exactly what they did. Using ropes and pure strength, the men worked together to bring the tea up from the cargo holds to the deck. They split open the chests and dumped the entire thing out over the side of the ship into the ocean. This takes us back to what I said just a moment ago. Nothing about this was a free-for-all. These chests were heavy, weighing hundreds of pounds. This was not some angry mob storming the ships, grabbing the tea and hurling it into the Atlantic. This was orderly. Everybody had a specific job that they were in charge of carrying out. People did their jobs, and that was that. There was no unnecessary noise or talking. There were at least a few situations where somebody attempted to snatch up some of the tea, considering that it was pretty valuable. However, December 16th was not a night for looting. The population watching events had no stomach for it. They fully understood the point of the ongoing act and were determined not to allow the more unscrupulous among them to attempt to make a profit. In one instance, a man was seen trying to take some tea. He was promptly stripped naked, thrown in the mud, and beaten for his troubles. While destruction was the night's objective, violence was not. At one point, a hoist broke and seriously injured John Crane. Crane stands alone as the only participant that night to suffer any kind of an injury. Crane, although initially thought to be dead, would be okay after some time. As for the crew on board the ships, they were typically locked up to keep them from interfering. However, other than that, they were not treated poorly or in any other way threatened. Everything was over in just a few hours' time. By the end of the event, tea weighing over 90,000 pounds was now floating in the water. Economically, the damage was estimated at over 10,000 British pounds. Secrecy then and now, prevails over the tea party. There was no roll sheet of who was there, nor were people ever excitedly passing out names. The leadership of the tea party is also unknown, though there was clearly a command structure in place. These men were not running wild, but were carrying out a well-designed mission with clear aims. Although no clear structure can easily be seen, we know a few of those who took leading roles came from the prominent Massachusetts families. Although this is not entirely unexpected, it is important to note that the leadership was not constrained to those leading families and found its sources through all rungs of Boston society. Both Paul Revere and William Molyneux were there that night. We know that Ebenezer McIntosh took a leading role. McIntosh was a member of the Loyal Nine, and was one of the leaders during the Stamp Act riots. McIntosh was definitely not part of the Boston upper class. Well, obviously the action took place in Boston, 
it is important to realize that this was much bigger than Boston alone. Men had come from all over Massachusetts to participate. The Boston Tea Party, therefore, was not an event that took place amongst a single class, but was rather something that involved different rungs of society. The Tea Party was a well-controlled, well-executed plan that stayed as far away as possible from descending into a mere riot. Well, men like Adams and Hancock were clearly interested in preserving their own ability to deny knowledge of the events. It is virtually impossible not to believe that they were not well aware of what was coming. More than anything, however, the events of December 16th are going to mark a major turning point in the history of Boston, Massachusetts, and indeed, the future United States. Last time, we had discussed the question of the inevitability of the revolution. That moment when each colony crossed that line that tipped them into the direction of war. Following the night of December 16, 1773, Massachusetts was clearly on the path to war. As we are going to see in the episodes to come, there is a very direct line that can be drawn from December 16th to April 1775, when fighting would erupt. Next time, we are going to examine the British response to the Tea Party. The leadership back in London was not at all amused by what had just happened, and quickly they became intent upon punishing Massachusetts. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as the British pass the intolerable axe.